It was my first or second week of university. I'd moved from the country to the big smoke. It was a really big change, but I'd started to meet some people and make friends, and one was a lady, Mari. As we were leaving a class, Mari mentioned she was going to an event. There was going to be free pizza and something to do with computers. I hadn't heard anything about it, but it sounded great because there was free food. So I went to the, the room with Mari. I grabbed a few slices of pizza. But it didn't take long for me to realise I wasn't meant to be there. I thought I was meant to be there, but I wasn't. The reason I hadn't heard about the event, even though I'd had free food, was because it was for women in information technology. It was designed to help female students find their way in a field where they were outnumbered by the blokes. I felt pretty foolish, thinking I'd belonged, but realised I wasn't invited. Have you ever found yourself somewhere you thought you belonged, but you actually weren't part of the community? Uh, You actually hadn't been invited. Today we're going to meet a bunch of blokes who thought they were Christian, but they weren't. Is this going to be an awkward moment for them or will they be welcomed in? Uh, Today we're following Paul and his mission team to two big cities, uh, Corinth, which is in modern day Greece, and Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. So we're picking things up. Paul's been in Greece. He's been in ancient Achaia. Uh, Last week he was in Athens, the centre of culture and philosophy, and now he heads west to Corinth, the centre of trade and money. In Corinth there are three phases to Paul's ministry. Uh, Phase one, Paul joins up with some refugees, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, a married couple who fled Rome, they're ethnically Jewish, they're followers of Jesus, and they partner with Paul to bring the gospel to Corinth. So please have a, open up your Bible, Acts 18, we're going to read from verse 1, Acts 18 and verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So phase one, during the week the three of them make tents, earn some cash and on Saturday they go to the synagogue and Paul proclaims Christ. Phase two, The team grows. Silas and Timothy, last we heard, were up in Berea, but now they join Paul, Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. And with five of them on the team, four of them work through the week. And this means Paul can spend every day telling people about Jesus. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. All right, let's press pause. We see here something of how Paul operates. 
If necessary, he makes tents to put food on the table. But when possible, he's freed from that to focus on the work of the word. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Imagine if we had this kind of ratio today. If for every four wage-earning Christians, one other Christian could focus on the work of the word. Missionaries, chaplains, ministers. All right, so we've seen partnership and the gospel preached in Corinth. But soon enough, opposition begins and then grows. First, Christians are kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, They can no longer speak about Jesus there. The Jews won't have a bar of it. But in God's providence, the bloke who lives next door to the synagogue, he's been saved. And so Paul, and I take it the church, they start gathering there. Verse 6. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. So there's opposition, but the gospel is growing amongst Gentiles like Titius and even leaders of the Jewish community like Crispus. But there is opposition, and it's no surprise, Paul is feeling knocked around, and so God, in his kindness, speaks to Paul to strengthen and encourage him. Verse 9, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Uh, Remember what we heard from 2 Peter 3 in January? The Lord is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's plan, his purpose, included saving his people in Corinth. There were people God had chosen to save through Paul's preaching. And so despite opposition, Paul sticks around for 18 months. And not just Paul, but also Silas, Timothy, Aquila and Priscilla. And things bubble along for 18 months, but then tempers flare again. The Jewish community is fed up with these Christians. They see them as heretics and blasphemers, even though they're they're next door. They don't want them next door. They don't want them anywhere in their city. The Jewish community has had enough, so they try to get the Roman authorities to sort things out, but it doesn't really go, go so well for them. Verse 12 When Gallio was proconsul, some kind of governor of Achaia, that's the region, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names about your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off 
Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Galileo showed no concern, whatever. Uh, not sure why Sosthenes cops it. As the synagogue leader, I doubt he's, he's a follower of Jesus. Maybe the mob is angry because it was his idea. Hey, let's go. Let's get Galileo to sort this out. And now that's backfired, and so he cops their wrath. Uh, This event seems to be the trigger for Paul, Priscilla and Aquila to leave Corinth and head over to Ephesus. So three stages in Corinth. Stage one, tent making. Stage two, full-time ministry for Paul. Stage three, growth in the gospel but also growing opposition. Now over to Ephesus. Ephesus is also a large commercial centre. We'll zoom in on Ephesus. Paul doesn't stay there for long. He's intent on getting back to his sending church in Antioch. And so he stays just a little while in Ephesus, but leaves his trusted mission partners, Priscilla and Aquila, to continue the work. Verse 19, they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is the God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. We've skipped over some some details, but this is the key events. The mission has moved through Corinth and Ephesus. And what have we seen? Gospel partnership in action. Sometimes we think of Paul as a lone ranger, a lone missionary, but that's rarely the case. Almost always, Paul works with a team. He partners closely with the church in Antioch. That's pretty much his church. That's where he's he's, he's a church member. He's sent out by that church in Antioch. And along the way, as he travels around, he meets up with godly men and women and they work together, either making tents or, as we see in Ephesus, Paul entrusts the ministry there to his partners, trusts these ordinary believers to do the work of ministry. Telling people about Jesus isn't the work of super-Christians. It's not just for the Pauls of this world. It's not even for the guys like Apollos who we'll meet in in a moment. Ordinary Christians, as we go about our ordinary life, we get to tell people about Jesus. And so we're going to see that as our story, our focus returns back to Ephesus. We're going to see God powerfully use ordinary Christians. So while Paul is visiting Antioch and encouraging other churches in that part of the world, big things happen in Ephesus. A very gifted speaker, a a Christian debatant called uh called Apollos comes to Ephesus. He's, he's a thinker. He's a talented debater. He's from Alexandria uh, in Egypt, which rivaled Athens for philosophy and learning. He's ethnically Jewish, but most likely very influenced by Greek culture and learning. He's a Christian who knows the way of the Lord Jesus, and like Paul, he takes the message of Jesus to the synagogue. Verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. This is a beautiful picture of how God uses people. I take it, Priscilla and Aquila, they've got nothing on Apollos. They weren't as educated. They were no debaters. But Apollos is humble and teachable. You can imagine what happened. They're in the synagogue together. Apollos stands up one day, is proclaiming Jesus, preaching and debating. He's, he's smashing the best of the synagogue Jews and Priscilla and Aquila are sitting there, they're, they're quietly nodding along. Or maybe they're shouting out, Amen, preach it, brother. Who knows? Occasionally, they raise an eyebrow. He's not quite on the money. And so they invite him home for a meal. And this couple gently explain what they've learnt about Jesus. Now, I've changed my mind about Apollos since writing the Bible studies, which we looked at this week. I had thought Apollos wasn't a believer in Jesus until Priscilla and Aquila get to him. But I reckon now he he arrives in Ephesus as a believer in Jesus, fully Christian. Just some of his theology is a bit wonky. The reason I think he's a believer because is, verse 25, he knows the way of the Lord accurately and He speaks with fervour. If you look at the footnote for verse 25, a more literal translation is with fervour in the spirit, which every other time we read that phrase in Luke, it means the Holy Spirit is empowering the gospel to be proclaimed. So he's a Christian, but he's a bit wonky. Where is he wonky? It's something to do with baptism. Maybe he thinks baptism is a ritual you must perform in order to earn God's forgiveness. Instead of a sign and seal, a proclamation of God's promises. Maybe he thinks baptism is something we do for God, not something God does for us. Maybe also, if he only knows John's baptism, maybe he thinks Gentile Christians have to obey the Jewish law. So, It's something like that. We don't really know. But what I love about Apollos, it's not his debating skill. It's his humility. Apollos is is the megastar preacher. But he's willing to learn from ordinary believers to listen to Priscilla and Aquila. And I take it, by the way, Luke puts Priscilla's name first. She's the wife. I take it she's the primary teacher. They're doing it together, but she is primary in her home, one-on-one, teaching God's truth, or really two-on-one. And it's worth noticing things like this because we live in a world where people will accuse God of being sexist. But it's not true. Women aren't left in the background, in the kitchen, but like Priscilla, they are used by God. Used by God to grow and improve the gospel ministry of Apollos. Humble, gifted Apollos. And we also see Apollos' humility as he gets on a boat and heads back over to Achaia, to Corinth. He doesn't go off on mission on his own bat. He doesn't think, oh, great idea, I'm going to go over to Corinth. No, he humbly submits to the church. Like Paul, he's not a lone Christian but a church Christian. There is no other kind. 
He only goes with the encouragement and support of the Ephesian church. Verse 27. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So that's Apollos. And with Apollos in Corinth, watering the seeds Paul and the team planted, Paul finds himself back, as God wills, in Ephesus. And when he gets there, he finds a bunch of people who think they're Christian, but they're not. So verse 1, we're up to Acts 19 now, and verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard there was a, there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Now, you think we didn't know everything that went on with Apollos. This event raises loads of questions we might like answered, but it doesn't answer them for us. Now, it's good as we read the Bible to ask all sorts of questions. But in places like this, I think instead of getting caught up with all the things we would like to know, but we can't, instead of asking, hey, God, why haven't you told me all the things we want to know? Instead, we should ask, what is God teaching us through what he has said? So there are lots of questions we might want to ask about these these people, how they heard about John's baptism, how they end up in Ephesus as disciples of John the Baptist. But what can we put together from this event? Well, first up, these, these men are called disciples. But they're not disciples of Jesus. They've not received the Spirit. They've never even heard of the Spirit. By disciples, it probably means disciples of John the Baptist, Though Paul's line of questioning, it's a strange set of questions he asks, isn't it? Starting with, have you received the Spirit? It probably, it sounds to me like they think they're Christian. Maybe they're followers of John, but they've started hearing all these rumours about Jesus and they've put things together and gone, well, we're not like those Jews who hang out in the synagogue because we're following John the Baptist. So maybe we're Christians. Maybe we're, we're like these, this new group over here that are Christians. But that's not the case. They're actually further back than Apollos. They're stuck in a time warp. They're still living BC. They've not yet come into AD, the year of the Lord Jesus yet. They've heard about John and the one coming after John, but they don't yet believe in Jesus. They think they're Christian. They think they're invited in, but they actually haven't been invited. They haven't heard the gospel. They actually don't belong with Christians yet because they haven't yet believed in Jesus. Verse 4, Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, listen up guys in Ephesus, that is in Jesus. And then Paul tells them all about Jesus and they believe, are baptised and they receive the Spirit and are welcomed into God's people. Verse 5, on hearing this they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. 
That's just great, isn't it? No longer awkwardly thinking that they were invited, that they belong as part of the Christian group, but they actually didn't. No, they've now heard the gospel clearly, trusted in Jesus, and have received the Spirit. Now, as I said before, this event raises loads of questions, lots of questions we actually can't answer. And so our question is, what does this passage not teach? And I'll explain that in a moment. What is it not teaching us? And what is God teaching us from this event in Ephesus? So first up, what does it not teach? Some Christians take from this event that there are two stages of the Christian life. There's the Jesus stage and then there's the spirit stage. Uh, Some people call it, there's carnal Christianity. Carnal means fleshly or meatly. And then there's spiritual Christianity. There's being a Christian and then there's the higher life where there is entire sanctification, letting go and letting God. Uh, Some people talk about this second stage as being baptised by the Spirit. But these dozen blokes are not an example of a two-stage or a two-level Christianity. Before Paul tells them about Jesus, they're not Christian. They're not saved. They're still BC. There are not two stages, two levels of the Christian life. What there actually is, is thousands and millions of stages. Every day, putting one foot in front of the other in the direction of holiness. Now, sometimes we do grow loads as Christian, like we're sprinting through the Christian life for a little while, but most of the time, it's small steps growing like Jesus. This passage does not teach two stages, two types of Christians. This passage also doesn't teach that receiving the Spirit must be accompanied by tongues and prophecy. No, faith in Jesus is a miraculous work of the Spirit. By nature, we are dead in sin. The Spirit gives us life and faith in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except because they've worked it out for themselves. No, no one can say Jesus is Lord except they're really nice people. No, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There's no Christian faith without receiving the Spirit. So then the question you might be asking is, why do tongues and prophecy happen here in Ephesus? Well, tongues are only mentioned two other times in Acts. At Pentecost and when Cornelius and his household uh, received the Spirit. So it's when the Spirit is first poured out and the first time the apostles are present as a non-Jewish person is saved. It's possibly implied when the Samaritans come to faith, but when you read the passage, it actually doesn't say that. So definitely twice, maybe three times, and then here. And this is the weird one. Why here? Once again, we're actually not told. It doesn't quite fit the pattern. It's not a new people group receiving the gospel. Others in Ephesus have already believed. Maybe what's going on, it's not about ethnicity, but about theology. Maybe it's because it's the first time an apostle has been present when disciples of John have been saved. We can't be sure. Maybe it's just a particular kindness of God. These blokes, they thought they were Christian. And now they really are 
And maybe, we're not sure, but maybe the tongues are given to them as an assurance that really they are now in God's family. Uh, There are lots of questions we want to have answered from this passage. But I trust God has told us what we do need to know. So as we finish up, we've heard what these events don't teach. Well, what do they teach? So very briefly, as we finish, Corinth and Ephesus are about partnership, perseverance and clarity. So partnership, particularly in Corinth. By faith, we are united to Christ and brought into his people. Paul lives out this truth. He's not threatened by other people. He doesn't always need to be in the limelight. He he brings people onto his team. And we see God bringing together and using all kinds of people, brilliant debaters like Apollos, tent-making teams, people supporting Paul. But, and this is really important, even the supporters don't outsource ministry. They were involved as God gifted them in speaking about Jesus. And we see this with the really important work of quiet home ministry, the individual ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. If it wasn't for them, Apollos could have done huge damage, speaking to to big crowds about Jesus, but not quite getting the gospel right. So yes, God uses the debater And he also uses the quiet person to speak the gospel. So that's partnership. And we also see gospel perseverance. There's a pattern in Acts. Proclaim Christ, get persecuted and keep proclaiming Christ. I think we hope the pattern should be proclaim Christ and then get applauded and welcomed by believer and non-believer alike. Now, in God's sovereignty, we live in a culture where, at times, a very small dose of Christianity has been welcomed, particularly if you can make people behave nicely. We like that. If it it makes teachers manners, that gets a tick from our culture. But historically and globally, that is very strange and weird, isn't it? So why would you proclaim Christ even when people will kick you out? Because it's true. Because it glorifies God. And because God saves sinners. He still has many people in this city. Do you believe that? So perseverance, partnership, finally. And we need to be clear on the gospel. Just thinking you're a Christian. Calling yourself a Christian is deadly. The dozen blokes in Ephesus, they remind me of the, the conversation you sometimes have with people. You ask if they're a Christian, if they believe in Jesus, and they'll say something like, oh, well, I believe in God. Or people used to say this, and maybe some still do, well, I'm an Australian, so I must be a Christian. Or I go to church, I suppose so. Now, we've got to be clear on the gospel. Thinking that you're a Christian, imagining you're a Christian, is not saving faith. What is the gospel? Well, Paul would later write to the believers in Corinth a great summary. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, 
and that he appeared to Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, and then to the Twelve, and then he goes on to list everyone who saw Jesus alive with their own eyes. What's the Gospel? We are sinners. We've rebelled against God. But Jesus died for sin, died in our place. He rose again, so everyone who trusts in him will be forgiven and raised to eternal life. Do you believe this? Will you receive Christ? Because whoever does, they belong. Belong to Jesus and belong to his eternity. Let's pray. Father God, please grow us. Grow us in our gospel partnership. Help us partner as a church to proclaim Christ, whether that's in public debate or in private, one-on-one conversations. Dear God, grow us. Help us to know you are the God who saves. And just as you saved in Corinth and Ephesus, help us know you will be saving people in our region. Uh, Strengthen us to persevere through opposition, hardship and persecution. And help us hold fast to the true gospel, to be clear on the gospel. If we've been thinking we're Christian but today discovered we don't know Jesus, please pour out your spirit, open hearts, that we might trust in him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.